everybody. Good morning, Mountain. Good to see you all. I'm Nate. I'm one of the pastors here. Very extra special welcome if you're a guest or, or visit us for the first time. Uh, I, you know, we have these bumper videos, we call them, that, that uh, lead us into the sermon time. And that's one of my favorite ones we've ever had. I just love that one. All the, the different images of the church. Uh, you know, just being the church and doing the things that we do down through the years, good, bad, and ugly, but mostly so much good. And uh, what is the church? Well, the church is just the people who follow Jesus, right? And everywhere, and like I said, down through the years. Um, how do we figure out how to be the church? We got this thing called the Bible. Uh, I brought mine with me today. Um, it's just our story and our guide. And, you know, I just figured instead of just me preaching, let's just read the Bible, right? So, I'm just going to read this. You guys get comfortable. Maybe top off your coffee. Uh, page one, okay? <laughs> so, now obviously we're not going to do that, right? We can't read the whole thing every day, every week. Um, so what do we do? Well, we read it consistently, little bit by bit, right? And then also we have uh, some other tools, one of which is uh, something called a creed. They have, there's these old um, things called creeds that people came up with way back in the day. Ben last week preached uh, the message, the first message in the series, and he talked in more detail about what creeds are, how we look at them, uh, what what they are and are not for us. So I just want to encourage you to go back and check out last week's message if you get a chance. And just wanted to remind you guys: it's summertime, people travel. That our sermons are always archived on their website. You can always check them out and uh, catch up if you want to. But just uh, for today, let me summarize. Creeds are at least uh, three different things. They're summaries, like I was kind of getting at. They're sort of um, boiled down the scriptures to some of the central core truths, the unifying beliefs of Christians through the ages. This guy, Vincent of Larens in the fifth century, he just said, said it this way, the church must hold fast to what has been believed everywhere, always, and by all. Okay, so it's, what's the core? Um, creeds help us to focus on that. Creeds also are defenses against heresies, or which is a word for like uh, false teachings. And so in the early church, there were some false teachings that were going around, and the creeds helped us say, uh, no, that's not what we believe. We'll talk more about that in a minute. And then creeds also are confessional in nature. They're, they're for worship. They're for us to come together like we're doing right now at all the campuses, and uh, if you join us online, whatever, we come together and we confess uh, to the world, we sort of say this is what we believe. We say it to God. It's kind of like our pledge of allegiance back to God. And then we say it to each other to remind each other what we believe. Um, you know, to get, get around uh, each other and just to be like, don't forget, right? Uh, okay, I'm not crazy. You're not crazy. Yeah, this is, this is our story and we're sticking to it. So there's one of these ancient creeds that's sort of the most, uh, sort of the shortest and sweetest and most beloved, simplest, most enduring one, and it's called the Apostles' Creed. And we're just using it as sort of an outline for our preaching this summer. Uh, when, we, when I confess this creed, I'm not saying I understand every bit of this perfectly and have mastered it in my life. I am saying I understand enough of it, enough to commit to it, to say this is who I am and what I'm trying to live out in my life. I grew up in a church, <clears throat> excuse me, where we recited it together in unison every week, every time we got together. So we're gonna do that today. For some of you, 
that will feel strange and that's okay just go with it for some of you it's going to feel good and right and like oh yeah I, I want more of this you know and for some of you I hope in the room are, are some who don't believe this yet or who are just kind of investigating or whatever and I always just want to say you're so welcome here I'm so glad that a uh, mountain can be a place where people can come and know that they're safe to investigate uh, Christianity and God and the Bible and all this stuff so uh, we're going to say it together you ready Oh my gosh, are you awake? Uh, okay, we're gonna say this thing together. Here we go. It'll be, I believe, no, wait. Stand up, let's stand up. It'll help. Okay, let's try again, ready? I believe, oh, hang on. Gotta say one more thing. There's a, there's a little word we're gonna say in just a minute as a part of the creed. Needs a little explanation. Sometimes people ask about it. The word is the word Catholic, okay? We're gonna talk about the Holy Catholic Church and it's a little C and it's just a word that means universal, okay? If it was a capital C, it might refer to the Roman Catholic Church, which is one particular sort of type of church. And the irony of this sometimes is that a word that means universal and all-inclusive uh, gets associated with more of an exclusive and saying, no, only this little kind of church. So what we're saying when we say the Holy Catholic Church is the whole big thing, all followers of Jesus of all flavors and shapes and sizes. Okay, make sense? Okay, now we ready? I won't interrupt you again. Here we go. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting Amen. All right, good job. All right, take a seat. Last week we talked about the first part, which focused on God the Father Almighty, the Creator. This week we're going to focus on the section that's all about Jesus that says, I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. And that is a lot to cover. Uh, just about every word in this section that we're going to talk about today or phrase is just so pregnant with meaning that we could preach sermon after sermon and then books have been written and whole careers and life, lifetimes have been spent on even just one or two of these little words. But I'm, what I'm, here's my goal today. We're gonna kind of hit the essence of each one. We're gonna be like when you're watching a video and there's a song and that little ball that bounces and kind of lingers and then keeps bouncing. We're gonna do that, okay? And um, just try to get at the, the very core of each one. So here we go. Uh, the first word is I, say I. It's just a simple little word, one letter, but it is so important, and the creed would be the creeds would be diminished without it. Um, speaking of eyes, do you know what you call a deer with no eyes? No idea. <laughs> do you know what you call a deer with no eyes that never moves or goes anywhere? Yeah, still no idea. Uh, this is one. Of, here's one of our favorites, my daughters and, and uh, mine. Um, what do you call a fish with no eyes? Yeah. 
Oh, it's good stuff. All right, so he, <laughs> here's the significance of the, the letter I repeated throughout the creed. Um, it means that this stuff is very personal. It's intensely personal. I love uh, to be a part of weddings and to get the honor of standing there with people and helping them to say these vows where they say, I do, right? I promise, I vow. I, I learned the other day that some friends, <clears throat> married couple, they repeat their vows to one another every year on their anniversary. I thought that's just super cool and powerful. I love to talk about community and how scripture talks a lot more about we than I, but there's a very individual aspect of our faith and each one of us must decide and must you know, uh, choose what we are gonna profess, what we believe. So that's the next word, I believe. Say believe. So what we confess in the creed is what we believe. The authors could have used any word that they wanted to there, okay? But um, it doesn't say I think, it doesn't say I know or I understand, it doesn't say I, I accept or I guess or I suppose or I reckon. The word purposefully chosen is I believe. To believe is to trust something or someone enough to act upon that trust, right? To believe is to walk out on a bridge believing that the bridge is gonna hold you. To believe is to kind of put all of your eggs in a certain basket. And so saying I believe something creates what philosophers or linguists would call a speech act. It's anytime we say something with some, uh, some uh, result that's the built-in expectation that something will happen, that's a speech act. What we uh, sometimes say around here is words create worlds. So we say, I believe, and then it continues, in Jesus. Say, in Jesus. So the creed, like our faith, is, is Trinitarian. Okay, it's structured around this mystery called the Trinity. <clears throat> Last week we talked about God the Father. Uh, we will talk about the Holy Spirit. And today we get to talk about God the Son. Three persons in one God. It's this great mystery. We can't really explain it all in, in a, you know, in ever really, but it's certainly not in one sermon. But today we focus on the second person of the Trinity and we, we um, ask ourselves this. Okay, do you ever wonder uh, how God decided the different aspects of how and when and where he was gonna enter into the world? Like when he came among us, um, and, and even specifically, once God decided, okay, I'm going to come at this time in history as this Palestinian male Jew, um, son of a carpenter, right? I'm going to do that. You ever wonder how he decided what his name was going to be? What name would you have chosen, right? I was thinking God could have chosen a totally new name that no one had ever had before. That would have made sense. He could have just chosen a, a symbol, like the artist formerly known as Prince or something like that, like it's totally unique and different in that way. Um, but he didn't. Instead, God chose this name, um, relatively normal, simple name. He sent word through angels and prophets to Mary and Joseph. They should name the baby boy Jesus. You ever wonder why? I don't, I don't guess we can really know totally why God makes the choices God makes, but we know what Jesus means. Jesus is just how we say the Greek word Jesus, which is just the Greek form of the Hebrew name Yeshua, which is just the same name that we would know as Joshua. Jesus' name is just the same name as Joshua. It was interesting, like when I lived in Mexico, first went down there, <clears throat> I, I was always, I noticed like how many people were named Jesus. Um, and like in a period in English, there's not a lot of people named Jesus. So I was like, wow, you're no pressure, right? Your parents named you Jesus, you know? <laughs> um, 
But then I just, I remembered, oh no, it's just Joshua. It's just a name that is intended in the case of Jesus that we're talking about. It was intended to hearken back to the story of the people of Israel and to a specific guy named Joshua. Joshua took over uh, the leadership of, of Israel after Moses and he led the people into the promised land. And this is a guy to whom God says in the beginning chapter one of the book, biblical book called Joshua, says this, <clears throat> be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Don't turn from it to the right or the left that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep, the book of the law, keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. This is Joshua who hears this from God. Joshua, you may have remembered the story of him marching around the walls of Jericho if you grew up in the church. Um, the guy who said, the same Joshua who says then to the people of God at the end of this book, so they're at this moment of, he's like reminding them of all that God has done for them. They're renewing their vows and their covenant with God. And he says this, now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods, small g, idols, your ancestors worship beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves on this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your ancestors or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you're living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. In other words, you guys, you can choose. You're free to choose. You're gonna, everybody serves somebody. Choose who you're gonna serve. But as for me, my creed I believe, I choose. And then even on a, a one le level deeper, the, uh, the son of God, Jesus, came and was given this name because of just the basic meaning of it. The, the meaning of the name Yeshua, it just means Yahweh saves. Yahweh is the name of the one true God of Israel. It means our God saves. So actually every time we profess and proclaim or even say the name of Jesus, we are saying God saves. He's our savior. We need a savior to get out of the mess we're in. So we say, I believe in Jesus. Next word is Christ. Say Christ. <clears throat> so Christ is not Jesus' last name in the Jerusalem phone book, like Christ, Jesus, okay? It's, it's more like Jesus the Christ, like Sarah the teacher, Jim the contractor, but so much more. It's, a, it's about his identity. The word Christ is just the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah, so the Christian faith grows right up out of the Jewish or Hebrew or Israelite faith and throughout their history for centuries and centuries. They had this sort of ever-growing and intensifying yearning and expectation for the coming of the Messiah, okay? They had lots of priests and prophets and judges and kings and healers and, and all that. <clears throat> and through all the ups and downs of all the human leadership, they eagerly awaited the one who would come and embody the best of all that, who would be even better, who would be the one true prophet that all the other prophets pointed toward, who would be the righteous judge and the forever king, right? And so the name Messiah, Christ means Messiah. Messiah just means anointed one. It means the chosen one, the one whose birth was going to be special, who was foretold who would do miraculous things and save the day and set people free and make it all right again. This kind of idea didn't originate necessarily with Israel. There's, you know, it's found in lots of different stories and religions and tales throughout the years, but it was most fully developed 
And then, this is really important, we believe it actually happened in real human history in this story of Jesus. So not just legend and story, but real history. This is where we get all the Christ figures in literature and film and everything. You know, so Aslan, right, the lion, and Neo from the Matrix, and Frodo, and Superman, and LeBron James if you're from Cleveland, right? These are the different shadows and, and reflections of this expectation This longing for the Messiah, the one who's going to come and save us. I got a homework assignment for you if you're interested in knowing more about this. There's a really cool organization called Jews for Jesus. We partner with them sometimes. And right on their website, they have a list of uh, just the 40, only the top 40 of the many, many messianic prophecies, the prophecies that happened hundreds of years before, all over the place, different voices, different situations that all pointed toward Jesus. And we look back and say, oh, they were talking about him. You can go around their website and, and look at that. It's pretty, pretty cool. Some people, so some people don't believe any of this. You may be like, nope, I don't believe any of this stuff. But you owe it to yourself to, to investigate it because it's such a big deal. Some people believe in this idea of the Messiah but do not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. They're, they're still, still waiting, still yearning for that Messiah to come. And others, including us, would say he indeed was the long-awaited and foretold Messiah. And so we say, I believe in Jesus, the Christ. And then it says, God's only son. Say, God's only son. All right, good job. You're still with me. We're following the bouncing ball, right? Um, So we leave it right there over this phrase, God's only son. Jesus, uh, referring to himself or being referred to as the son of God, um, also has sort of layers of meaning to it. Uh, one, direct res- one aspect is it is a direct response to the cult of the emperor. In ancient uh, Mediterranean religion, including the Roman Empire, son of God was a common sort of designation for the king. They, would, they believed that even if they didn't consider themselves to, in every way to be God, they did consider themselves to have this divine standing and they deserved worship and they deserved, you know, Uh, sacrifice and military service and all this. So at the time of Jesus, you have Julius Caesar and then his successor, uh, Caesar Augustus, and they're going around calling themselves son of God. And they even printed it on on money with their image. So the the term was divi filius or some different derivations of that. And you would actually see it on the coins. It was like, here's my face and here's who I am, son of God, right? Now the Jews though believed that something different. They believed that worship should be given only to the one true God, Yahweh, right? And they struggled to figure out and came up with different approaches of how to live that out. And then Jesus comes along and he just flat out says, uh, yeah, no, <laughs> only, only worship the one true God. And oh, also, uh, side note, I'm him. <laughs> I am God, actually, in the flesh. And this made some people really angry uh, this, however, also caused some people to look and see how he lived and what he did, and, and they actually believed him. And they were like, I think he really is God in a human body. And then he died and rose from the dead, and a lot of people like really, really believed him. Okay? And so then we, we, we read things like the beginning of Mark's gospel says, the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then sort of if we peel back another layer on this, how it says the only Son of God Well, just to summarize, what that means is basically that what we believe is that Jesus is our very best chance, the best opportunity that we're ever going to have to see 
and understand and have access to and connect with the almighty, eternal, powerful creator God. We, uh, as this one guy, Michael F. Bird says, he, he wrote a helpful book on the Apostles' Creed. He says, uh, Jesus is our window into the mystery of God. We, as it says in Colossians chapter one in the Bible, the son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. It says, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile himself to all things. So, God's only son, we see God most clearly through the person of Jesus Christ. Next word is the word our, O-U-R, our. Say our. Okay, now turn and look in the eyes of another human being and say our. All right. Um, I talked earlier about how this is such a personal thing, our faith. However, um, I also want to say this very clearly. It is your faith and what you believe and what you profess is Yes, very personal, but it's also never private. There's no such thing as a little private Christian faith. It is always communal, confessional, shared. This one little word is super, super important in the creed because it reminds us of our community and mutuality and shared identity and responsibility to each other on many levels. Me and the intimate circle, you know, people I do life with, small group, church, campus, mountain, and then um, uh, ripples out to this all, the whole big C church in the world, right? We are part of something together. So it says our, and the next word is Lord. Say Lord. <coughs> Excuse me. This one's very straightforward. Um, I think we know what it means, even though we don't go around these days um, calling each other lords and ladies and this kind of thing. But Lord is a term of respect that means, it means like uh, authority or leader or, or boss, uh, Jesus, if he, if he is who he said he was, then like he rules. He's the, he's the boss of me, right, and of you. Uh, when it comes to Jesus, every human has to decide who he is in relation to us. And there's, there's basically four options. It's a multiple choice question, okay? Option A is he's a legend. You can believe Jesus did not really exist, just kind of a made up story. Basically, no one believes this because of the mountain of just historical evidence of you know, his existence and all that he did. I, I gotta say too, if you do wanna know more about Jesus and his impact on our world, um, can't resist recommending a book for your summer reading. It's a book called Who Is This Man? by John Ortberg. So let's say none of us are gonna choose A because we're smarter than that, okay? He clearly existed, not just a legend. Here's the three other options uh, famously presented by C.S. Lewis, another great Christian writer. Um, and he said this, one of those options is liar. So Jesus was just a big liar, liar, pants on fire, right? Now, I found an old King James translation of liar, liar, pants on fire. Check this out. Teller of untruths, thy trousers hath combusted. <laughs> That's like the old version. Um, I just thought that was funny. So why, uh, you know, the question you have to ask is, okay, why do so many people believe him and still do, right? Uh, another option is uh, lunatic, okay? He was loco. He was just a crazy person. And we've seen crazy people convince others of things before. Um, but interestingly, uh, hardly anyone chooses this one because m nobody really wants to call Jesus a crazy person. Uh, even when people say, Jesus, I don't believe in Jesus as God, you know, in flesh. I don't want to follow him. Um, they like to say, but he was a great man. 
I mean, he was a good man. He was a great teacher. He was a prophet. Uh, the problem is, and this is what C.S. Lewis talks about, is that those, these are not legitimate options. Um, you cannot look at the things that Jesus did and said. Uh, I'm God. I forgive sins. Love your enemies. I was there at the beginning of time when the world was created. Eat my flesh. Drink my blood. I'm going to die and come back alive again, et cetera, et cetera. You can't look at those things and say, this was a good moral teacher. This was a good guy, a prophet. Either he was a dangerous evil liar or a stark raven lunatic or, choice D, Lord. Lord, this word that we, that we find in the creed here. Um, exactly who he said he was. God himself somehow in the flesh. So we say, I believe in Jesus the Christ, the only son of God, our Lord. And by the way, uh, that's good news. He's good at his job, right? If he's the boss of us, he's the best boss, okay? This is his mug, okay? He's the perfect leader. He's fair and just and full of love and full of grace and worthy, the only one actually worthy of this kind of allegiance out of us. And you're invited by him to call him Lord and to follow him, to have a relationship with him. But warning, it's also dangerous to call him Lord. It's, it's scandalous. It will cost you something. Jesus, to say Jesus is Lord is to say Caesar is not. And fill in the blank, other thing, other person, other whatever in my life is not. Can't have two Lords. Gotta choose. Leadership is a big topic. It's always a hot topic. It's big business, right? I, I'm, I'm, it's fine. I study leadership too. But for Christians, if we don't begin with lordship and talk about who we follow and who we obey and who we submit to, then talking about leadership is mostly a waste of our time. So we say Lord, and then it says, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Now, there's a whole lot we can say here. Let me say a couple important things right up front. One, this is not about mechanics. This is not a scientific statement, okay? It really doesn't matter uh, how the Immaculate Conception took place other than to know that Mary was happy and willing to accept this role as the earthly mother of God the Son. Secondly, uh, regarding the Holy Spirit, I have the great luxury today because this is a preaching series of uh, putting that topic off and letting someone else teach you about the Holy Spirit in a few weeks. So I'm going to do what the Baltimore Ravens do so well and so often, I'm going to punt on the topic of the Holy Spirit. Okay, um, and then number three, here is the main point of this clause, I think, that, that Jesus of Nazareth was fully divine. He was fully God. He was not half man, half God. He was 100% God and 100% human somehow. It's not something we can easily explain, but to be a Christian is to believe it. I mentioned uh, earlier some of those early Christian heresies and false teachings that threatened the unity of the church, threatened the coherence of the story. You can Google up a long list of those and like nerd out on that if you want to, but I'm just going to share a couple of them. Um, here is uh, one called adoptionism, which is the belief that Jesus was born as a mere man, non-divine, and he was just very virtuous, and he was later sort of adopted as the son of God, and he rose up to that status. And the church has always said, no, he is fully divine and always was from the very beginning. There's another one called Apollinarism, which is a belief that Jesus had a human body and like a lower soul. The seat of his emotions was human, but he had a divine mind 
That was, that was God-like, uh, or God himself. And the church has always said, no, Jesus is not some sort of schizophrenic house divided against himself. He was fully God and fully human in his mind and his heart and his emotions and all of it. There's another one called Arianism, which is sort of a grouping of very specific ones, um, which basically were different ways of saying Jesus was created. He was a created being the, the, by the Father. Uh, he had a beginning in time. Uh, the Son of God was sort of a, a courtesy phrase. And the church has, says, church has always said, no, there is no uh, hierarchy within the Trinity. Jesus, like it says in John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So as I'm going through these, I just noticed that like dozens of you fell asleep. So wake up, wake up. That was just the A's, but we'll stop there, okay? I'm not gonna go through every uh, early Christian heresy. Wake up your neighbor, we'll keep going. Basically, I wanna say this. As you dig deeper into the Christian faith, it becomes more and more vitally important to affirm that Jesus was fully divine, that he really was God in the flesh. There's not some kind of hierarchy in the Trinity. They're equal and mutual. Simply put, only God can save us. We believe, we're not humanists who believe we're eventually gonna save ourselves from the mess we're in. So if only God can save us, and if Jesus is the Savior, he must truly be God, okay? All right, we let the ball bounce to the next word, and the word is born. So say the word born. All right, this is basically the other side of that coin that says if in order to be the Savior, the Christ, the Messiah, the Lord, Jesus must be fully divine and also fully human. One, one more early Christian heresy, only last one, I promise, stay awake. It's called docetism, which is the belief that Jesus' physical body uh, was basically an illusion. His crucifixion was an illusion. Didn't really happen in physical form. He was sort of this pure spirit uh, who kind of walked among us. And the, the church has always said no. Jesus was not a ghost. He was not some sort of a hologram. He had a real physical body and, and real suffering and a real death and a real bodily resurrection. And that's important. Uh, Michael Bird again says, the incarnation of God, incarnation meaning the putting on of carne, the putting on of flesh, the incarnation of God as a human being is the load-bearing symbol of the Christian faith. Super important. Uh, the incarnation of God through Jesus is where we see the climax of this, this great epic tale of salvation history. The visitation of God among us as the Messiah. The, one of the church fathers, Athanasius, he said this, what is not assumed, assumed meaning taken on, picked up, what is not assumed cannot be redeemed. So simply put, if Jesus was only sort of mostly human, sort of kind of human, but he really remained this like angelic being among us. If he didn't truly experience our hunger, our thirst, our weakness, our pain, our sufferings, our temptations, then he cannot really be what we say at Christmas, Emmanuel, God with us in the way that we need him to be to save us. And so every Christmas, and I hope way more often, we sort of pause and allow ourselves to be filled anew with wonder at it all. Could, could it really be? Could it really be true? This amazing story of God, almighty God, sort of squishing and squeezing himself down into this baby. It's almost, 
It's almost too wonderful to be true, but almost, because for some reason, I believe, right? And you are invited to do the same thing. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born, and then it says, of the Virgin Mary. Now, um, this is a totally unimportant thought, but whenever I see the words Virgin Mary, now that I live here, I always think of Virginia and Maryland for some reason. I just see that. (laughs) Side note, but did did you know that there's only three human beings uh, mentioned in the, the Apostles' Creed? One of them is Jesus. The other one is this guy named Pontius Pilate, and I get to, again, punt on him. You can come back next week. Um, And then Mary, this great hero of our faith. On the one hand, uh, we don't want to overdo the the aspect of her virginity. Now, you, you could even argue, I'm not necessarily arguing this myself, but some have argued, it doesn't really change anything if the whole story played out the same, but she had already been married and already had other kids, right? It doesn't necessarily change what, who Jesus is. Now, some people go on and extrapolate and build this whole um, doctrine of what they call the perpetual virginity of Mary, okay, which is pretty strange based on the plain fact that in Scripture we see Jesus had a bunch of younger siblings, including James, the author of one of the books of the New Testament. So there's no need for us to believe that Mary, like, goes on being a virgin forever. But here's the main problem with the over-preoccupation with Mary's virginity. It detracts from the real issue, which is her obedience, her amazing, heroic, beautiful obedience to God. When he comes uh, to her, uh, he, you know, there's this contrast between the reason she and Pilate are in the creed. It's a contrast between uh, the call of God and the human response. And Pilate represents the person that had the deck stacked in his favor, right? He's male. He's properly married. He's a Roman governor with political power. He's wealthy. Um, and God comes to him, and, and basically he has a choice of what to do with Jesus, and he blows it. He, he wimps out. He sends Jesus away to his death. He washes his hands. Then there's Mary. The deck is stacked against her. She's poor, teenage, female, unmarried, no political clout. And God comes to her, hey, here's this opportunity to be a part of the story of Jesus, and she steps up. She's bold and courageous and faithful. So on the one hand, we don't want to overdo the virginity thing. On the other hand, we don't want to underemphasize it either, the virgin birth or what we would better call the virgin conception, because after all, it's in the creed. And again, scripture is our authority, not the creeds, but it is interesting that this uh, makes the cut when a lot of other really important things don't. It was decided and has been passed down as something very important. And so uh, here is, I think, the main reason why. Because this whole concept of virgin conception and virgin birth, it speaks to the, the strangeness and the specialness and the absolute uniqueness in human history of Jesus of Nazareth. This miraculous union between the Holy Spirit And Mary, this person who somehow has DNA that was received from God the Father and a human mother. It's like the exclamation point on our belief that Jesus was absolutely unique in human history, the God-man, the Messiah, the Lord and Savior. There's all kinds of other stories that sort of have some amount of overlap with Jesus' story, but we believe that those stories don't hold a candle to this story. Okay, there's all kinds of other religious leaders 
but, but I believe that Jesus is in a league of his own. There's all kinds of other teachers, and, I, and we believe that if, if they were all here today somehow, other prophets, teachers, religious leaders, that what they would do is they would gather around him. They would sit at his feet. All truth is God's truth, and we acknowledge it wherever we find it. But when it comes to our creed, our faith, we say, I believe that God revealed God's self in Jesus in an absolutely unique and world-changing and gotta have some kind of response out of me kind of way. See what I'm saying? All right, so we followed the bouncing ball. And here we are. Let's remember, remember that the creeds are only useful in so much as they point us back to the scriptures. And really the scriptures, the Bible at the end of the day is only useful in so much as it points us to God. We don't worship the Bible, we worship the God it tells us about. And the same will be true of Christian art. So what I wanna do is to end by showing you a painting, read some verses from the Bible, and I'm gonna pray and we'll be done. As I'm doing so, I want you to think about a couple things. I want you to ask yourself a question. So what? What does any of this matter? Why does any of this stuff that this guy just said from that stage matter to me? And if it does matter, what, what step does it propel me to take? Ask yourself this, what, what do I actually believe about Jesus? Think about that. And then also, I just want you, I wanna say this again. There's before you an invitation. If you've never accepted Jesus as your Lord, your Savior, the true Messiah, the God-man, the one who makes all the difference in the world, just know that he's real, he's alive, he's here. Through his spirit, he loves you, he invites you to have a relationship with him, to, to walk with him and follow him. So here, as you ponder those things, here's one of the most famous images of Jesus ever made. It's a painting known as Jesus Christ Pantocrator. He, it, it's just a fancy word that means Lord of all, Lord of the universe. It's a sixth century Byzantine painting. It's found at the um, monastery of St. Catherine at Sinai. A couple of things to notice. His hand, his right hand is, is a sign of doing a sign of blessing. His left hand is holding and embracing the, the scriptures. There's a city in the background, but mainly we want to focus on his face. This is uh, an amazing, amazing example of the divinity and the humanity of Jesus held within one person. I want you to take your hand and block out, make, make it where you can only see like your left, his right side of his face, okay? This, this part of the painting represents his divinity, the divine qualities. You can see that it's clearer, it's brighter, uh, it's sort of staid and constant and solid. He looks directly at you, he makes eye contact. This represents the divine part of Jesus, um, the divinity of Jesus. Now do the same thing with the opposite side, and this represents the humanity of Jesus, it's softer, it's darker, it's a little blurrier. It looks weaker, it looks weary, maybe. Uh, his eye, con he, it looks like his eye is, is kind of looking down and away from us. This ama amazing image sort of shows us, helps us to reflect on this, this concept of the humanity and divinity of Jesus. So in light of what we have talked about here today, in light of the things I just asked you to be thinking about, I just invite you to either just reflect on and look at whatever screen you're looking at, 
Look at this painting or close your eyes if you prefer. And just listen to these words about Jesus of Nazareth from the, from the book of Colossians. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether things on earth or things in heaven by making peace through his blood shed on the cross once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I have become a servant. Let's pray. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. As we stand before you in the mystery of faith, uh, I proclaim anew today, God, that I believe. And I pray that you would bring many others to believe, bring everyone to believe in you because of your love. God, we're never going to convince or argue people into faith. Help us to, to love people and for them to see your, the truth of who you are. Through that, And God, I pray that um, the invitation to follow you for the first time or in just a deeper and truer way would just be truly heard and felt by all of us. Lord, bless us and guide us as we go from this place. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.